Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Joining us now is Michael O'Rourke, Chief Market Strategist at Jones Trading. Michael, let's start right here where we start every single year. We start this conversation about this is the year for active management. And then we have a double-digit gain on the S&P 500. We've had that over the last three years. And here we are year four. Michael, we're talking about this is the year for active management. Michael O'Rourke, what do you say when you face that debate, that conversation? I think it's interesting because for the first time in a long time, we're seeing a different economy a different uh, global financial and economic outlook uh, where you have this inflation um, scourge that's kind of taking over the globe that's going to shift monetary policy throughout the world. So when you look at the monetary policy of the past 13 years, there's always been this lower for longer outlook or the static easy monetary policy that worked really well for index investors and passive investors. As far as this year is concerned, I, I think we're going through this major secular shift um, where rates and inflation are going to matter. And it's also going to be fueled by uh, things like, you know, deglobalization and decarbonization. So you're going to need someone to actually be making decisions if you want to navigate what could be a tre- very treacherous 2022. So give us a sense of your take on the diversion that we, divergence that we've seen so far between value and growth. Michael, is this a head fake or is this the beginning of a rotation that could persist for more than just a couple of months? Well, Lisa, I want to say your daily rundown was superb because I'm watching the same things that you are. And I do think this value versus growth argument is important. Um, I've been in this value camp for most of 2021. So I, you know, am I concerned about the head fake? A little bit, but I think last year's head fake really had to do with Jay Powell, you know, looking for uh, that further progress in the job market. Market, and we're in a reverse situation this year, where all of a sudden Jay Powell's become an inflation hawk. And again, inflation's a very aggressive um, influence on the economy in the sense that it hurts the people who can afford the least the most. So it also becomes a political football. And in that case, I think Jay is going to be a little much more diligent this year than we've seen him in his past in the past at the Fed. And I think that's going to be the key difference going forward, which I do think plays well for the value space. Michael, the moment is a great bull market after 36 months coughing, coming off Christmas Eve of 2018. What is the character of this bull market in the year four? You know what? It's it's driven by financial conditions. We have record easy financial conditions. Don't forget this easing policy that we've had started well before the pandemic. Uh, Powell started cutting rates in the summer of 2019. So, uh, you know, there's been a lot of liquidity piled at this market, a lot of f- fiscal stimulus. So I think what we're watching for as we shift gears here and looking look to a tighter policy, especially monetary policy, whether it's obviously tapering and eventually balance sheet normalization and, of course, tightening, I think that's going to be the shift. But right now, the, the, the liquidity is abundant out there, and that's why we see so many bubbly aspects of this market. I mean, just to quickly go back to that value versus growth argument, 
Tesla had that move Monday. It added $140 billion in market cap. That's more than Citibank or Citigroup or <laughs> Goldman Sachs. So, again, there's a big disparity in this market out here. And, again, I, that's what th this liquidity is driving as that slowly gets taken away. We should see big shifts in the market. Uh, Michael, I just want to pick up on that story on Tesla and just get a final thought from you on it. I think it's important. What does it say to you to see that much additional market cap added to that name off the back of each and every additional auto they beat estimates by? That, to me, just felt wild. I wouldn't call it insane it happened. The market did it. But it felt wild to me, Michael. It was, it was definitely wild. What's interesting, are, are we valuing this company at, you know, a billion dollars per unit sold? Uh, I mean, it, it is an insane move. But it is interesting because now you had Ford come out yesterday and they said they were going to ramp up their production of the EV F-150. And those shares had a nice move. What you're seeing is, you know, obviously competitions coming into the space. People see the market reacting like that. Um, traditional automakers, uh, Bloomberg obviously has a story this morning about Volkswagen and Toyota looking to make a push to take down Tesla. You had Sony come out at CES saying they're going to introduce their electric car. Uh, this type of euphoria and this, you know, this type of market response definitely invites more competition, which is going to make the environment more, more challenging. Ford had a massive year last year. Can they do that again? Michael, thank you, sir. Michael O'Rourke at Jones Trading. Just going through some of the big issues right now. The passive versus active debate continues. Now to an important conversation with Christian Muller-Glissman. He's with Goldman Sachs, but far more importantly, acclaimed for very dense, detailed reports on the view forward on asset uh, allocation. Christian, thank you so much for joining us. One of the hearts of your report is the trajectory of the inflation adjusted yield and that the real rate in some way will migrate up through a negative statistic up near a positive statistic. Is that a linear function or do we have to worry about acceleration and the effect on our portfolios as the real yield, real yield moves out of the abyss it's in? Yeah, listen, I think you asked the most important question for 2022. Are we going to get a, a, a significant increase in the real yield? And in particular, is it going to be gradual or is it going to be um, very quick? And will there be step changes? And if you look at the last few weeks, it's had this very clear reflationary behavior. The market has gotten less worried about Omicron, looking at the UK, looking at the cases, the hospitalization, the death rates, all of that. Um, gives gives the market comfort that maybe the growth impact is 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 less less bad. So you go back to reflation template. So bond yields have gone up a lot and fast, but most of that increase has been inflation expectations, not the real yield. And this has been a story which mm -hmm. we've seen all of last year. Um, but for this year, the big difficulty is that the Fed is live and is going to start hiking. And what we found historically is once the Fed starts hiking the real yields and the back-end real yields start to move higher. So our view is it's a gradual move. We are expecting implicit in our forecast maybe 30 to 40 bips, and that could very well be digested by equities in aggregate, but it means lower returns, and there's always the risk that it gets a bit uh, shaky from time to time. <clears throat> Every time when we are in this kind of period where the Fed starts their tightening cycle, there's a risk of a bit more volatility. 
right. I got a follow-up to that, but that answer was so smart, Christian, I'm going to move on to other topics of the moment. I want you to speak for all of Goldman Sachs. I don't want to get you in trouble here with Mr. Solomon, but when are we going to finally end the active versus passive management debate? Give us your take on the value of active management after what we've seen the last 12 months. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned it at the very early uh, beginning already. I think if returns are slowing, if you start to see the beta um, uh, as a driver of your portfolio return um, uh, become less important, alpha automatically um, gets more important. And, and I think it's a typical early cycle versus mid-cycle discussion. Early in the cycle, things are highly correlated on the way down, on the way up, and it's all about getting the beta right. Whereas when you are going into a more mid-cycle backdrop, usually there is a, a place for active management. And we generally think that, that uh, we are entering that type of period now where even the style rotations, which have been very violent, and we've, we saw a bit of that again in the last few days, even those style rotations become um, less significant relative to individual stock picking. So I definitely think that there is um, an increasing focus on active management. Active management is not just about stock picking. It's about the whole investment process, market timing. It's about timing uh, regions. It's about timing styles and individual stocks. But we certainly see that there will be much more pressure and much more focus on active management <coughs> as the type of return potential comes down a bit. Christian, one of the active moves so far this year has been into value away from growth. And we keep talking about whether this is a head fake, something really similar to what we saw last year. Is this something that you think will portend a trend or simply uh, something that will get reversed in two months? To me, I think the whole coming cycle, um, uh, there's a strong case for being a bit better diversified. I think in the last cycle, as we know, the best thing you could have done is own uh, U.S. large cap growth stocks. And, and uh, you would have been very happy with the sharp ratio, very tough to beat. Whereas in the coming cycle, we think that the return differentials um, between regions and styles, um, as I mentioned, they might narrow. And there's a real risk benefit. I give you an example. Um, the correlation um, between value and growth, um, the two styles, has actually declined in the last 20 years. Um, so makes sense because growth has outperformed a lot, value hasn't done that well. But that type of correlation can be a diversification benefit. So it tells you that if you want to reduce portfolio risk, there's a really strong case to, to, to just strategically think about incorporating a bit more value stocks in your portfolio. But as you said yourself, there are these waves and these waves have a bit of that flavor that after one to three months, you're done with. And I think um, there's a good risk that um, the, the kind of current value wave, again, will, will kind of accelerate and slow and maybe partially reverse, depending on the news flow we have on Omicron. But what's really different yeah. uh, with regards to value versus growth compared to last year is, as I mentioned, that the Fed is very likely to start their tightening process via higher rates. And that means that you have maybe a bit more longevity towards this rotation. Christian, before we let you go, I, I want to get your sense. Scott Cronert of Citigroup came out two days into the trading session and increased his S&P target for year end. Does it concern you that everybody is competing to be the biggest bull right now? Listen, I think um, we look at the positioning and the sentiment a lot. And um, I think people are overweight equities. And uh, they're probably at the margin 
more overweight quality equity, not really down in quality. Um, and, and, and that combination has meant that we're not that worried. So I think people at the margin acknowledge that equities are kind of, especially relative to fixed income, um, they're having a lot of support um, from flows, from valuations, um, and to some extent from fundamentals. And I think that's correct. I think we are overweight equities as well. And we do actually think that there's more scope for demand for equities um, uh, in the coming uh, years if you continue to, to keep the cycle going. And what I would be worried about is if um, increasingly the, the bullishness is, is, is focused on very cyclical parts and you see a lot of the indicators um, with regards to what we were just discussing, value, um, cyclicals, riskier parts of the market, leading for a prolonged period of time. And, and that could then kind of create a certain bullishness for the cycle, which eventually could get disappointed and create the risk of a larger correction. But we don't have that right now. Um, so I, I think we're not that worried yet about the extent of bullishness we have. Christian, thank you. Always good to hear from you, sir. Christian Miller-Glissman there of Goldman Sachs on a year ahead. We drive forward this conversation with Bhakti Ansadi, also at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Ansadi, thank you so much uh, for joining us. What should the CDC do? Should they just say, look, PCR, we tried it, it doesn't work, and we need to look at far more rapid, rapid testing? So PCR does work, and that's the wrong messaging. But the correct messaging here is, look, right now, we just don't have enough tests. Access to tests is extremely challenging. Systems are overwhelmed. Rapid tests are expensive, but also not available to major parts of our society. If you are symptomatic, given the current pandemic, you should isolate for the full 10 days. Because what is also known is after five days from your onset of symptoms, most people will be uninfectious, but about 31% of individuals will continue to be infectious, and there is a risk that they will continue to transmit the virus onwards. Your acclaimed Dr. Hensadi worldwide in dealing with testing and virology in poor nations. I don't think that describes America. How did we get in this spot where we don't have enough rapid tests? You know, I think it was, we had a lot of tests available within health facilities. I think this is a consumer market. Um, only 13 rapid tests were ever approved by the FDA, right? So the number, the, a number of tests is low when it comes to rapid testing. There was over 400 tests approved um, that are non-rapid tests. But then there's also issues around distribution, market share, um, and the pricing of the tests, which is really can cause delays in making sure that everyone has access to a test. Dr. Hansadi, what's your sense of the CDC's guidelines? I mean, John was just reading, it's as clear as mud that, you know, if you have a test, great, you can take it. If you don't, don't worry about it. Just go about your life. I mean, is this more harmful? Is this going to actually undermine trust in a health system that's really struggled to get the right message across? I mean, that's been a story of this pandemic, right? To some point, we agree that the pandemic has evolved and thus guidances also need to evolve as our data and knowledge evolves. But their messaging has been frankly confusing. Um, it leaves employers unsure what to do with their workforce, right? So test um, symptomatic 
isolate for five days. Okay, that's clear. But then when, how do I get a test to you? Will those test results be available on the same day? When do you make the decision whether to isolate for a further five days or return back to the workforce? And if you do return back to the workforce, how do we ensure that that return does not put others at risk? Um, and I, so I think the guidance has been challenging to interpret, but also challenging to implement. Which is frankly the reason why people, a lot of companies have gone to PCR tests, have gone to something that is the most extreme to prevent outbreaks from offices. At what point do you see that actually becoming a moot issue? We were speaking with Dr. Amish Adalji yesterday who said this is absolutely the wrong test. Would you agree and do you think that it will start being phased out as the barometer of infectiousness in the near future? So rapid tests are a wonderful tool. They are sensitive but extremely specific. So if you have a positive rapid test at home, there is no reason for you to go and get confirmatory testing, use up, consume that space in the health system that needs to be made available to others. Also, PCRs do not make sense for asymptomatic individuals. Symptomatic individuals that need to know for certain that they are positive or not and don't have access to a rapid test are the only ones that should be getting a PCR at this time. Doctor, wonderful stuff, wonderful work as always. We appreciate it. Dr. Bhakti Hansati there of Johns Hopkins. Right now, we're going to dovetail in the always interesting Eurasia Group top 10 risks with what we see immediate. And Ian Bremmer's known for years as he's done the top 10 risks that it gets rewritten by the moment. We're going to rewrite it right now. Alex Boudreau joins us right now, the expert on Russia at Eurasia Group. Mr. Boudreau, how does Putin respond to the upset in Kazakhstan? I think he responds carefully at first. Um, everybody's sort of watching to see how these protests develop, and I think that's true in the Kremlin as well. I think uh, they may have been caught by surprise as much as anybody. Uh, one thing that Putin does not want to see is chaos uh, on the streets uh, in Kazakhstan. So they'll be looking to see what the Kazakh government's responses uh, look like uh, and whether or not they can control the situation. And I think also they'll take some lessons in terms of what this means with uh, popular uprisings that are connected, in particular to uh, the raising of gas prices, which was, seems to be the immediate cause of this particular situation. When we look at this in study, we hearken back to our collective memories, and that is a memory of the Soviet Union. Address right now how much there's a tinge of the Soviet Union in your analysis of Moscow, the present states of Russia, and the former states of the Soviet Union. Well, certainly, I think for President Putin, uh, there are these linkages back to the Soviet past that he, you know, he's expressed regret about the breakup of the Soviet Union. But I think also there really is not a, a sense that Putin wants to go back to those days, um, that this is sort of some kind of ambition of his. Um, but I think in the general area, you know, whether we're talking about Kazakhstan or whether we're talking about Ukraine, uh, or the crisis in Belarus as well. Moscow con continues to believe that it has a very important role to play in this region, that it's its sphere of influence. Uh, and that leads to some of the tensions uh, between Russia uh, and the West uh, that we've been seeing just over the last couple of years. So 
Russia is always a problem spot, typically, uh, when you look at some of these geopolitical maps of potential risks. And here we have it at number five. It moved up significantly. I believe that you said it wasn't even on the list last year. So what changed to make it in a situation, and certainly the relationship between the U.S. and Russia, at the brink's edge of precipitating some sort of international crisis now versus, say, 12 months ago when it was just Russia? Well, I think in 2022, we're looking at, uh, you know, a few issues that could actually lead to crisis. Certainly there's, you know, the U.S.-Russia relationship has been particularly bad over the last several years, but it's these specific problems. And of course, right now, uh, the big focus is on the situation with Ukraine, uh, with Putin's demands about a basically a redrawing of the uh, Eastern European security order uh, as well. And that's led to these major tensions just over the last couple of months. Uh, but beyond that, if we look ahead uh, later to the year, there's concerns about uh, whether or not Russian actors, whether they're state or non-state actors, will interfere in the U.S. midterm elections. Uh, that has been a big red line for President Biden. He's made that pretty clear. Uh, and so the trigger for some sort of U.S. response to that uh, is, is fairly low. Um, other issues of concern would be in the cyber realm, uh, you know, a repeat of the, the colonial pipeline ransomware uh, attack last year uh, or the solar winds case. Yeah. If we saw something of that nature, uh, that would also be a concern. So these these problems have been mounting. Uh, and this year, there's a real risk that one of them turns into a crisis. Going back to where we began the conversation with Kazakhstan and the idea of uh, higher gas prices igniting social unrest, how much has the Nord Stream 2 issue really caused a fissure between Europe and the United States, with Europe in a much more delicate position with such a strong uh, geopolitical uh, location with respect to gases, uh, gas prices and Russia? Well, certainly the European reactions, I think, have driven U.S. responses to a certain degree. And with the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, the Biden administration basically struck a deal with the Germans uh, over, you know, to allow that pipeline uh, to go ahead with some very heavy conditions. Uh, you know, the, the instinct from Washington has been to impose sanctions to try and stop uh, the pipeline. The Biden administration has resisted that, I think, because they're you know, in the, the interest of trying to repair the transatlantic relationship, especially with the German government, they want to be very careful about how the U.S. responds. Also, I think it's a recognition that ultimately the German government and their regulatory authority over the pipeline uh, is probably the single biggest <laughs> obstacle to Nord Stream 2 becoming operational. But for Russia, this is a big deal. Uh, Putin certainly wants this pipeline to become operational. He wants to make sure that Gazprom uh, is able to keep its market share uh, in Europe. Uh, and that leads to tensions between uh, Russia uh, and the EU as well, where there still is a lot of skepticism for many members, including especially Poland, uh, about this pipeline and whether it should be operational at all. Alex, thank you so much. I've got eight more questions, but we don't have the time today. Alex Bordeaux, Eurasia Group on the top 10 risks for 2022. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.